0: Well, the book of Philemon is basically Colossians 5. Last week we read that the Apostle Paul was sending Onesimus, this former slave or servant of Philemon, uh, who had left him. Onesimus had stolen from him and then had departed from him, leaving him in a lurch. We don't know how, what problems that caused within his home or within his business. But he had taken off, found his way to Rome, where he encounters the Apostle Paul who becomes a spiritual father to him. And so now Paul is sending Onesimus back with Tychicus, his trusted friend in ministry. And as I said earlier, some have used, if not abused, this epistle to either defend slavery or to condemn Christianity for condoning slavery. And the reason they do that is because they read these kind of verses regarding slaves. They read them in the context of our Civil War. They read them through the lenses of the era of Martin Luther King Jr. And in our day, with with social justice at the forefront of our political climate, I think it might be helpful if I just remind you once again that this letter is not about slavery. has nothing to do with slavery. There were 60 million people within the Roman Empire who as members of vassal nations, all of them were considered slaves. Plus, what the Bible refers to as slavery, back in the Old Testament, the, the biblical use of that term had to do with economics. Much like Today, you might say, you know, we are enslaved to our bank. We are enslaved to our credit card company. They own us. (laughs) We get up and go to work every morning so we can pay them. It was an economic issue. And as I pointed out before, when the Lord called his people out of slavery in Egypt, he set forth in his law, Exodus 21, Very clearly says, anyone who kidnaps another, sells him or possesses him, must be put to death. Why? Capital punishment is to be a visible, public deterrent to that kind of behavior. The Lord is sending a very clear message. He has created man in his image, male and female. And you are not to kidnap someone or abuse them or enslave them so to use the bible to defend the kind of slavery that occurred from the 16th century to to what we experience today what we see today is wrong you say well we, we don't have slavery anymore yes we do yes we do there are 29 million people as i speak Who are either being forced into labor, who have been forced into the sex trade, or who are being trafficked by the cartels on our southern border. This is happening either within Islam, within communist countries, or within the cartels. And so to to say that, that the Lord approves of that is to bear false witness against him and his word. Yeah, well, what about when Paul addresses slaves in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 6 and in 1 Timothy 6 and in Titus 2 and even here in Philemon? What does he say? What did he say in Ephesians 6? Regard those in authority over you with honor. You submit to them by doing what is right not embracing slavery. He's speaking to to the witness that we are to have for Christ. He's not addressing the social evils of the day, then or today. He's simply saying, serve others in a way that most glorifies Christ. Ephesians 6 Do the will of the Lord from the heart, knowing that whatever good you do, the Lord will notice whether you are a slave or you are free. I mean, it's like when when Christ says the poor will always be with you. That's not a statement of indifference towards poverty. He's saying this is life in a fallen world. This is the way it is. And this is how you are to navigate it. Now, are we to fight against it by, by means of the flesh or are we to fight against it by means of the Spirit that honor and glorify the Lord? Which way do you think he's speaking about? Well, he's certainly not talking about fighting with the flesh. Notice how he, he uses this worldly reality even to convey this, this spiritual truth in his own life. He says, I'm currently a prisoner for Christ. <laughs> talking about somebody enslaved. Well, why why are you a prisoner? I've been falsely accused. I've been arrested for telling the truth. Well, how are you going to respond to that, Paul? You going to take self pity? No. Are you going to rant and rave against the Roman government? No. I and Timothy, this young man that I've been mentoring, this young man that I've been preparing for ministry, we send these greetings. Now, let me just remind you once again, Paul is under house arrest in Rome around 61, 62 A.D. We know of at least three times that Paul was arrested, fulfilling what the Lord had promised him in Acts 9 when he is encountered on the road to Damascus. He has his personal encounter with Christ, and he is told, you are going to suffer great things in order to take the gospel to Gentiles. Did that come true? Absolutely. Acts 16, in Philippi, you remember? Philippi is in Macedonia, that's the northern part of Greece. He heals this young girl whose owners were making money off her sorcery. She's casting spells on people. The word for that is pharmakia, from which we get pharmacy. The girl under influence of the occult was casting spells. And so, as Paul and Silas come to town and they are delivering the gospel, what does she do? She starts yelling that Paul and Silas are servants of the Most High God. (laughs) Is that true? Yes. Do they welcome that kind of witness? No. This is the kind of demonic testimony that, that um, Christ had to deal with. Remember the demon-possessed guys in the uh, Gadarenes in Matthew 8? They cry out to Christ, O oh, Son of God, have you come to torment us before our time? That leads us to ask the question, is there a demonic realm? Well, absolutely. Absolutely there's a demonic realm. And it's not the imaginary world of magicians as Harry Potter would have you believe. This is a real world. These are are those who were cast out in rebellion with Lucifer. And according to Revelation, there's tens of millions, tens of millions of them. And they can cause blindness, Matthew 12. They can cause deformity, Luke 13. They can cause epilepsy, Matthew 17. They can cause insanity, Mark 9. But the primary mission that they have is to corrupt truth. And so a lot of times they do that through advancing every kind of immoral rebellion imaginable. As a matter of fact, the word for what this girl is doing is demonizomai. Now that does not mean that you are demon-possessed. But under the influence of that which is demonic, those individuals can be violent and they can be abusive. You know, sometimes people will ask me, can Christians experience demon possession? No. No, they can't. But you can traffic in the demonic realm. I mean, it's like if you drink too much, people don't say you're alcohol-possessed. They say you are under the influence of alcohol. To to clean something doesn't mean it is sanitary-possessed. It means that you have sanitized it. So a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. But they can traffic in the demonic realm. You can do that through pornography. You can do that through homosexuality. You can do that through adultery. You can do that in a number of ways. You can come under the influence of that which is violently opposed to everything the Lord has called you to be. And in Acts 16, this girl who's hounding Paul says that she was possessed. And when he heals her, of this, the guys who were making money off of her casting spells, they're furious. And they generate riots resulting in Paul and Silas being beaten and arrested. That's 51 AD. Make a note of that in the margins of your Bible there. 51 AD. Six years later, 57 AD, now we're in Acts 21, Paul is arrested again based on false accusations that he brought a Greek he brought a Greek past the court of the Gentiles into an area of the temple reserved only for Jews. Now, that was not true, but it doesn't have to be true for riots to occur once again. And they're so vicious, so vicious, the Romans arrest Paul to keep him from being killed. This is when a, a Roman commander allowed Paul to speak to the crowd again in Acts 22. And he shares his faith. He shares about his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. And you know what that did? Caused another riot. So the Romans, to appease the crowd, they flog him. Not realizing that he's a Roman citizen, which made that flogging illegal. And then what happens? The Jews try to assassinate him. They try to kill him. So the Romans take him to Caesarea where he gives his testimony once again, this time before the governor, Felix, who leaves him in prison for another two years because he's hoping that Paul will use his influence to get money from the churches and bribe the governor to release him. All he had to do was give Felix some money and he could have gotten out by fleshly means, but Paul would not do that. And so he is kept in prison. 59 AD, King Herod Agrippa II visits he, too, hears the testimony of Paul. This is Acts 26. Then they send him to Rome. This is around 60 A.D. Now he is under house arrest. He's able to have family and friends to come and visit This is when he is writing to the churches the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, the book of Philippians. And then he writes this personal note, this book to Philemon, 25 verses, between 61 and 62 A.D. Now, four years later in 66 A.D. is when Paul will be arrested again. And this time he realizes that Nero is going to order his death. And that's when he writes to his his, uh, young man. He's he's mentoring uh, Timothy. And he says to him, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is stored up for me a crown of righteousness that's been purchased by Christ. And the Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and forever. That's when he writes it. But we're four years earlier now, 62 A.D., you with me? He's writing to his friend Philemon and to his wife, Aphia, and to his fellow soldier, Archippus. Many believe he's Philemon's son. According to Colossians 4, he's engaged in ministry, and many believe that he's either pastoring the church that that had been founded there in Colossae, um, uh, Epaphras had founded, or he's ministering to the church at Laodicea, or he's doing both. But I want you to notice how much emphasis Paul puts on friendship. Basically what he is saying is we're much, much better together than we are when we're on our own. That's why worshiping together in person, seeing one another in person, shaking hands with one another in person, hugging in person. Engaged in Bible study together in person is so much more beneficial than being isolated in a room with a television screen. That's a very beneficial tool in ministry, and I realize many have to use that from time to time. But I want you to make a note in verse 3 here that this word you is plural. Grace to you, not just you, Philemon, not just to your wife, Apphia, not just to Archippus. This you includes all to whom this letter is going to be read in the churches. All of you. Peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This is what binds us together. Paul and Timothy and Philemon and Apphia and Archippus and all the others that are listed at the end of this letter. This is what pulls us together. It's by, by, by divine grace that we've got peace with the Lord through Christ. And where we have peace vertically with the Lord, we ought to have peace horizontally with one another. Do you see the point that Paul's getting to? I'm sending Onesimus to you, Philemon. I'd really like to keep him with me because he's, he's become just a great blessing to my life. I like having him here ministering with me, even though I'm under house arrest. But there are some things that need to be cleared up between you and him before I can do that. I want you to notice the tone of Paul's letter here. The reason I, I point that out is because I have heard over the years people say, you know, I, I, I get it with Christ. Wonderful, wonderful individual. But Paul, I don't really like Paul. Why? Oh, he's just so harsh at times. Harsh. Maybe you don't consider cleansing the temple harsh. You know yes, Paul was confrontational in his earlier years. He had to be. He, he's, he's dealing with spiritual warfare. But he's down to his last four years of ministry now. Listen to the tone of this letter. I want you to see three things here. He's thankful, he's prayerful, he's joyful. Verse 4, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. Did you notice that after everything Paul has been through, from 51 A.D. to what is now 62 A.D., that's 11 years, he's no longer highly esteemed as a Pharisee. He's being cursed, falsely accused, arrested, rejected. In his letter to the church at Corinth, he said he's been beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, hungry, cold, destitute. And so you would expect him in this letter to say, You know, Philemon, if you could, please come to me and and rescue me from, from this situation that I'm in. But he doesn't. He doesn't say that at all. He's giving thanks. Not because he enjoys suffering, nobody enjoys that. It's not because he enjoys people lying about him, nobody enjoys that. It's not because he likes to be arrested. He's giving thanks because he's focused on the purpose for his life. So whether you're arrested as a prisoner or whether you're a slave, whatever you are, whatever your situation in this life is, The point is, how do you live that to the glory of our Lord? The issue is not about whether he's respected as an influential Pharisee with a formal education or whether he is a prisoner for unjust reasons. He's simply saying it's about doing what is right before the Lord. And that's exactly what he's about to ask Philemon to do. I want you to do what is right before the Lord. When I send Onesimus back to you, I want you to demonstrate to the whole church how you are to forgive. And so I give thanks and I pray. This is not going to be easy for you, Philemon. I know what he's done. I know how badly that hurt you. I know how badly that must have disrupted everything that you were doing there in Colossae. This is not going to be easy. So I'm praying for you. Alistair Begg said on his radio program, he was telling about a guy that he knew over in Northern Ireland, his name was T.S. Mooney. The guy was a bachelor, never married. But he, he taught a boy's Bible class in Londonderry, Northern Ireland for 50 years. On the walls of his small apartment, he had them covered with pictures of the young men he had discipled, many of whom had become judges, Surgeons, teachers, mechanics, plumbers, all walks of life. The one thing they all had in common was their love for Christ and commitment to honor him with their life, no matter what their occupation might be. But it wasn't just Mooney's teaching. He had a habit of praying, each one of them, every day. When he died in 1986, the housekeeper, thinking that he was not at home and she was going to enter to clean his apartment, walked in and found him fully dressed, kneeling beside his bed, dead. She immediately called the headmaster, who had been one of his Timothys. The headmaster came with some other men, and when they took hold of of Mooney, his, his body already stiffened from rigor mortis they pulled it back from the bed and they found beneath his head was a little black book alongside his bible a book that contained all the names of the young men for whom he had faithfully prayed for 50 years can you imagine what must have gone through that headmaster's mind when he looks down at that little book and he sees his name And realized that this man had prayed for him all these years. And was praying for him when the Lord took him home. Can you imagine getting a letter from the Apostle Paul saying, I'm always praying for you. Giving thanks. You know, I don't want to be overly dramatic this morning or sentimental. But I've had this experience. Say, what experience? Where I have prayed for many of you daily, daily. And when I give thanks for how the Lord has enriched my life because of some of you, I mean, I kind of understand how Paul must have felt as he is writing this to his good friend Philemon. One of my mentors who passed away recently, he used to say every time I spoke to him, Wayne, I pray for you every Monday because I realized that sometime on Sundays they can be very discouraging because he had been in ministry longer than me. And so I pray for you on Mondays that you won't quit. I've given thanks for that man in my prayers many, many times. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christians more than our prayer life. Nothing. Our prayer life speaks to the awareness that we have of our own inadequacies, and it reveals the, the truth, reveals the truth about our love for Christ, our love for ministry, our love for members of his body. Robert McShane one said that what a man is on his knees before the Lord is all that he is and nothing more. What you are when you're on your knees before the Lord in prayer is all that you are and nothing more. And in verse 6, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Do you understand that? Many do not. It's one of the most difficult verses translated from Greek into English that we have in the Bible. That verse therefore is often misunderstood. That verse is often misapplied as many think that it has to do with witnessing, the sharing of your faith. But the structure in Greek does not read that way. The Greek structure speaks to Philemon's participation In the body of Christ, with all the others within the church who share the same faith, your participation in this, Philemon, will become effective for the sake of Christ. How? What's he talking about? Well, he's about to tell him. He's about to tell him. I am not going to order you to forgive him, Philemon. No, 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 no. I understand Onesimus stole from you. I understand he left you. I understand he comes to Rome and leaves you. But I'm trusting, Philemon, that when I send him back, your participation in the body of Christ will lead you to do the right thing, to forgive him, receive him as a brother. And this will serve to enhance your knowledge of every good thing that we share in the body of Christ. In other words, we don't treat one another the way the world naturally treats us in situations such as this. And so it deepens our knowledge of the great blessings that we share in the body of Christ. And when we forgive others the way we have been forgiven you got to keep in mind, this is going to be read in front of the whole church. Everybody sitting there in Philemon's home. They're all there to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And now every eye is on Philemon as this is being read. What will he do? Will he do the right thing? How will he treat Onesimus? How will Onesimus respond? All eyes are on these two guys. The question is, will he live what he claims to believe. And then when you get to verse 7, you, you know, we celebrate the fact that we do not read this in the King James Version. Say, so why is that? Because the Greek word translated to hearts here is not cardia. It's not talking about the heart muscle. It's the word splochnon. Splochnon? Bowels. I mean, imagine reading this before all of the church. They're all staring at Philemon as they hear the shplaknon of the saints has been refreshed through you. Everyone's bowels rejoice in your kindness and generosity. Why would he use this word shplaknon? It's not the physical heart muscle. It's the seat of one's emotion that comes from their heart. It's the core of who you are. Everyone's life is refreshed by the way you treat them, Philemon. And I want you to know that just brings me great joy and comfort. So will I, Philemon refresh the souls of all within the church in the way that he treats Onesimus? See, that's the question. That's the point that Paul's getting to. This man who has offended you. This man who has stolen from you. This man who has rejected you. And now, now, think about this. He comes back with a testimony of how wonderful the Apostle Paul has been. Oh, yes. I mean, how how much the Apostle Paul has blessed his life. How much he has enjoyed doing ministry with the Apostle Paul. How will Philemon handle that? Can you genuinely... Humbly, graciously, gladly embrace Onesimus as a brother in Christ, though he has hurt you repeatedly? And as you do, will that not deepen your knowledge in the great blessings of forgiveness that we share in Christ? So Paul says, look, I take great joy and comfort from the way that I see how you have treated others. And, you know, there are those that when we see them coming, do you have this experience? You know, you see somebody and they're headed your way and you think, oh, no. Oh, no. Bless their heart. This person just sucks the air right out of my balloon. And then there are others. You see them coming. I have this experience quite often. As they're still making their way toward me, I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you for allowing me the privilege of knowing them and doing ministry with them. Man, they are such a blessing. They are such a blessing. Philemon, I want you to be and continue to be that kind of person. I want when Onesimus sees you, he's going to rejoice. I've seen how you've treated others that way. Now I want you to treat him that way. 400 years ago, during the second winter in America, for the 102 individuals who left England aboard the Mayflower, only half of them are still alive. and only and that was only true because of native americans who helped them learn how to hunt how to plant how to grow crops and that was the reason for the 3 day celebration in december called thanksgiving there were 80 native americans who brought wild turkeys with them and they gathered with the 44 pilgrims that were still alive that would provide the prayer and the songs and the sermons of thanksgiving That was the first Thanksgiving. That three-day celebration was condensed into one day by George Washington in 1789 as this country became a nation, their own nation. Later in 1863, in the midst of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln would declare the last Thursday of November as the day in which we should give praise and glory and honor to our Lord for his many blessings. And the reason that, that, that Lincoln said that, I mean, you got to remember this is just a few weeks um, before they will enter into the bloodiest part of that war, and yet he's giving thanks. Why? Well, for one thing, we are going to do away with that which was going to divide us as a nation. Secondly, we're going to rejoice that foreign powers have not interfered in our national conflict. That took divine intervention. Thirdly, we're going to give thanks for the peace that has been maintained in civilian life. Fourthly, we're going to give thanks for the harmony that is going to prevail throughout this country, everywhere except on the battlefield, where freedom is going to be won. And so we have an awful lot for which to be grateful. It took divine intervention for all of that to occur. And so President Lincoln said, we need to give thanks as a nation. And he designated it the last Thursday of November. And that's a sentiment that was confirmed by Congress in 1941, which is kind of an odd time to do that, don't you think? I mean, this country had just survived a revolution, had survived the War of 1812, had survived a civil war, had survived World War I. And now, as we were teetering on yet another world conflict, we need to stop and give thanks that as a nation, we worship under one God, the true God. And we have the freedom to worship him in spirit and in truth. And like the Israelites following their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, They sang songs of praise on the other side of the Red Sea. So it was with our forefathers seeking freedom to worship the Lord according to the truth of his word. We ought to gather to give thanks just as those pilgrims did with Native Americans who did not look like them, who did not talk like them, who did not live like them. But the one thing they had in common is they were all created in the image of God. And so they came together to praise him for his many blessings. I think we do well to remember that this week, that Thanksgiving is not just about hunting or feasting or watching football. We are to give thanks always as we remember one another in prayer because of the love and the faith that he has given to us as a people that we might derive much joy and comfort from those who are a blessing from the Lord to us in our lives. May we give thanks. If you have any questions, you can go to the connect table or to the prayer room or you can meet with me this week in my study. I'm always glad to help. Stand with me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have more theological resources at our disposal than at any other time in all of history. And yet too often, I fear that one of our weaknesses is that we are not as thankful as we ought to be. And furthermore, we do not pray As often as we ought to pray. And we are not as joyful. As you have given us ever reason to be. Because our our focus too often Lord is horizontal. We're just too consumed by our problems. And our conflicts with sin. and, And. We're just not very. Vertical. In our. Focus. At least enough to appreciate, as President Lincoln did, the many blessings that you continue to bestow upon us, even though we continue to live in the midst of a very fallen world. So, Lord, our prayer this morning is that we would not be guilty of thanklessness or prayerlessness or joylessness. but that throughout each day we will continually give thanks for your many blessings. Blessings that you have given us in Christ and also blessings that you have given us within his body here as a church. Lord, we are genuinely thankful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.